and welcome to Tech Live. Stephanie Christopher here, Chief Executive of the Executive Connection. Tech Connect CEOs, executives and business owners to the world's largest business leader network. It's always a great day when Tech Live releases a new podcast because you know you're going to hear a lot of new ideas that you can then either listen back to or have a think about. So I get to hear it live, live. I'm sitting in the studio with Stephanie and I'm going to get all the ideas. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Leah. That's that's great. What an intro. Well, mm. I'm glad we are live and you seem very much alive today. Very much. Good. Cool. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Ben Grozier, the co-founder and CEO of Class Cover, a software as a service organisation that helps over 2,000 schools in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore to save time in the management of their casual relief staff. Ben describes his working life as being divided into three parts – teacher, small business owner, and tech startup founder. So using this experience, he loves educating business owners to avoid the mistakes that he's made to achieve their goals faster and cheaper. Ben Grozier, welcome to Tech Live. Hey, Steph. Good to be here. I think you sound like David Brent. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never thought of that. There was always the Mr. G comparison with, uh, Uh, I think you remember, Summer High Tie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. uh, When when I was a teacher back in the day, someone dropped a Mr. G mug on my desk one day. I thought it was kind of half funny. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what. No, I think I'd take David Brent. I'm probably more David Brent. You could be Mr. G. (laughs) This is going to be a good conversation. So we're going to talk today about the different hats that a business owner mm-hmm. or, or indeed a CEO has to wear. And tell us, well, first of all, tell us about Class Cover because mm-hmm. it's an interesting organisation. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, as you said, Class Cover is a, a software as a service, helps schools manage their casual teachers. And it was really a classic kind of solution to a problem mm. um, scenario. And, and that was to say that back in 2011, I was actively teaching. Um, I'd come back from five years six years in the UK and I'd just gotten out of the surf, funnily enough, it was the middle of August, pouring rain, peak time for casual teachers and I got a call from a teacher at Harbord Public School Mm -hmm. and she said, can you come in and work? And I said, yep, no worries at all, see in half an hour. Then I got another call from a teacher at Harbord Public School and they said, can you come in and work? And I said, no, I'm already teaching for Tony. And then I got another call from a teacher at Harbord Public School and I was just like, this this can't be right. There can't be such little amounts of collaboration and if one teacher, one booking is experiencing this, what are 2,300 mm. schools across New South Wales, 9,800 across Australia, what are they experiencing? Mm. And we estimated about 4, 4 million wasted phone calls are being made every year to unavailable casual teachers. Goodness. And uh, So does yeah. a teacher, normally would that be how it would work? A teacher would find a casual teacher? Yeah, it, yeah, that's one way that schools yeah, approach right, it. Okay. So everyone covers their own absences, or it might just be a principal who's responsible for everybody yeah, right. um, at the school, which and, is even worse. Yeah, and they might be making up to twelve teacher bookings a day. You know, taking two hours a day on the on the process. So, yeah, I mean, pretty much we we've plagiarised whatif.com. I don't know if you remember the hotel yeah, booking I do. Um, app from when we used to go to hotels. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's about right. And, um, and I always thought it was, they got acquired by Expedia. I think it always mm. thought it was a shame when they lost that sort of matrix of availability. Yes. But that's exactly what we plagiarised. It was the, it was the hotel room, the hotel names down one uh, column and then yeah. the dates across the other. Yeah, that's right. And it was just a case of you could in, you, and it wasn't a hundred percent bulletproof, but you could go and see your teacher's availability in advance of calling them. Mm. And and even 
to this day, first out of school holidays today, but up until last week, we could go on a school's list and they'd have 100 casual teachers and literally 90 of them would be unavailable on any, any given day. Mm. And so you can imagine what sort of problem that was solving Yes, um, when it came to better targeting teachers who could and wanted to work. And so, yeah, so that was sort of the basic premise of the mm. platform. And then we went on the roller coaster, you know, it mm. was, and, and just – uh, yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday who was looking to start a business and talking about the risk involved and what have you. And I just said, look, twice as much time, three much as three times the money. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a good little rule of thumb. Usually we're starting something up. So it's going to take twice as long as you think it will and it's going to cost three times. There or thereabouts. And, and I, think, Easy. I think most business owners would, would reflect, uh, mm. and especially those who have started something from scratch, would reflect and say that you know, at the very least you mm. need to put in that level of buffer. And um, yeah, so we we went we went down that pathway and and we built something out very light and then we just tried to get schools to give it a go. It was all a PowerPoint um, slide deck to start yeah. with that was absolutely manual, backed by a good story, mm. and um, tried to get people to you know I, I leverage contacts, tried to get people just to take a chance on us, mm. and uh, then yeah, built it out and and then grew it from there. It's great. Yeah. Great story. Is that your first startup? Was that your first startup? Uh, yeah, yeah. First tech startup. Yeah, we had a we had a small professional development company mm-hmm. prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we I've, I've got a bit of a sport background. I was a tennis coach for ten years. I mm-hmm. ran tennis centres in Australia and the UK. And totally, Mister G. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And um, and so we saw there was a real gap for teaching. PE teachers how to teach or, or training them. Yeah. You could always go and get literacy and numeracy professional development, but there was a real gap for PE. Yeah, right. And so we did that. It was more that that was on the sides, I yes. guess, and we yes. never really threw down to go full time. I think it was a problem worth solving. Yeah. It just probably wasn't the time. And this is an important consideration I say to many people, especially people who are a um, little wary of their ideas being stolen. Mm. And that's the case that there are so many good ideas out there. Execution is the main component to getting an idea to turn into reality, but then also people's lives and people's time mm. often just doesn't blend in well. And I, and I was fortunate enough that I was just in a stage of life when the idea came to me, I had a low commitment job you know, as a casual teacher. I was mm. in between sort of the UK and Australia, just reestablishing myself here. And it was the right time to execute. There's so much there to <laughs> unpack all of that. So let's get to the the idea mm-hmm. of the number of hats that you have to wear. Yeah. Where you are in your business right now, tell us about the number of hats you have to wear. Yeah, so at the moment we're a team of about 22. Everyone is uh, in our team is reasonably well divided into different roles. The way I see my role as as running class cover is someone who just tries to give context to start with because I'm the only one in the business who's been there from mm. from go to woe. Mm. And and it's amazing how often that comes up. Mm. Yeah, you know, and it might be talking about a feature or it might be talking about uh, a a customer, it might be talking about um, one of the sort of governing bodies that we work with. And and also I'm the only teacher on the team. And that hasn't always been the case, but as it stands, I'm the only qualified teacher and obviously we're we're an HR business. But we're also an education business. We work in education, so giving context um, is a big part of what I find myself doing at the moment. But then also just reducing barriers and trying to make things frictionless. Yeah. And and I'm such a big believer that 
the best functioning teams, and I do sincerely believe that you could drop the class cover team in its current form into any small to medium tech business, mm-hmm. and they would thrive based on mindset. They're a brilliant team, and I think a lot of that comes down to I think myself, and I'll give myself a little bit of credit for this: building a culture where no one feels any reservations about saying these three things, and that is, I'm wrong, mm. I need help, mm. or I made a mistake. And if you can get a team around you who are not hiding from those three things but feel very comfortable in the knowledge that if I come to you as soon as I've got a question, I've made a mistake, mm. I need help, mm. then we're going to speed up the pathway to success and it's, it's going to be more frictionless. And that's kind of the mindset I take to the, the entire operation of the company. How can we be more frictionless in relation to where we want to go? And I'm the one that can either create – because I could put huge bottlenecks. If I wanted to have decision-making power over everything we do in the business, mm. and we still run pretty lean, 2,000 schools, 50,000 casual teachers, team of 20, that's mm. a team in Chennai, a team in Cebu and the Philippines, things could be very slow. But we try to make decisions on the available information, not overanalyze too much, fail fast, fail cheap. But again, this is all with the overarching theme of trying to be as frictionless as possible. I really love the two things that you've said there. The first one is creating context. Mm-hmm. That's actually the role of a leader in the business anyway, isn't yeah. it? Especially someone who's been there more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. But the creating context has to not be, we tried that before and it didn't work so we won't do it. Mm-hmm. But it's being very intentional about what information will help you in the decision you're making now understanding either the context of my vision as the leader or the context of the history of the organisation. I I think that that relates to every single business leader. And then the other one is that frictionless taking away the barriers. Mm -hmm. Boy, that's hard for organisations, isn't it? It is. And it's funny because I feel that in startup, there's a real contradiction in startup. And I find this, I do a lot of work with regional startups and Mm -hmm. I I find them to be so refreshing to work with because I think they – they come to the table with no sort of adherence to stereotype. They they look at things, again, talk about first principles thinking. They look at what's the problem I need to solve and they solve it. They don't look around and go, what's everyone else doing? How do I get on the front page of the financial review? You know, they, they bring a, a way more – um, a greater clarity to their plans around executing on their on their solutions. Can you say more about first uh, first? I can't even say it. First principles thinking. First principles thinking. Yeah. yeah. So uh, first principles thinking is just not living or working by analogy. And the vast majority of people they they live by analogy. And that is, they look around, they see how everyone else is uh-huh. solving problems. Yeah. And they go, well, that's how I need to solve problems. It's not stripping it down to what's the actual problem here and what's the solution. What do I need to actually achieve and how do I achieve it? And there's a really good um, sporting example of that that's been in the news just recently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you, you like your golf at all, Steph, but um, – not, yeah. not – I'm completely neutral, so you okay. teach me something. <laughs> well, and, and it's not it's not whether about loving the, the game or not, but uh, interestingly – and I, I actually don't – I like the game. I don't follow the game yeah. so closely. I even know the the name of this guy, but he won the U.S. Open, and he brought this completely different approach to getting the, the ball from the tee into the hole, which is what you need to do in golf. You need mm. to get the ball from the tee to the hole in as few shots as possible. So what he decided to do when the pandemic came to pass 
Number one, he had a physics major, yeah. and so he explored golf club technology. He explored all the dynamics around golf ball flight, what have you, and then he hit the gym. And he came up with this theory that if he can hit the ball 50, 60 metres further past anyone, further than anyone else in the game, then to be able to hit a shot maybe from the rough, from a less than ideal position from 50 metres away was way better than hitting it from 150 metres away in the perfect position, if you know what I'm saying. And all the establishment went, what the hell is this guy doing? Yeah. This big muscly bloke, he's just belting the cover off the ball. He doesn't care about where it lands. But he won the game. He won the tournament by six shots. Yeah. And I thought it was a great example of first principles thinking because he just came at it. I need to do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna analyze it. I'm gonna work out how to best do it. And he didn't listen to all these naysayers mm. around him. Well, that's not how you play golf. Mm. You keep it straight and true. Mm. And you get the ball from here to here to here in this way. It was, it was a, a really good example of that. So then that's truly disruption, isn't it? Mm. You're forgetting about analogies. You're forgetting about you're just starting from scratch. That's right. I guess back to the point about um, whether it be the, the regional startups or, or just startups in general, I find that we we talk about ourselves being innovators with our products and services, but I actually think especially in a lot of the, the metropolitan cities, I feel like there is a real lack of mindset innovation. And that is to say, okay, what's a success metric for a tech startup? And is it to get on the front page of the financial review to announce a capital raise to tell your mates how many people you just hired? And I think there's a complete lack of adherence, a complete lack of respect for being cash flow positive or for being profitable. The the, the vanity metrics overtake the yes. actual metrics of value. Yeah. So the, and so mindset innovation, where does that fit in? Well, well, I think again, it's it's looking at the problems on their merit and saying. How do we solve it? And I mean, let's say from a class cover example, our, our average invoice size is about $1,000 per school per year. Yep, right, okay. Now, it wasn't always the way. Mm-hmm. With we were, we were priced a lot lower. Mm-hmm. And, and I always talk about with, with startups about making sure that you are blending your life into your business model. Now, my life situation didn't allow me to wait around for three years until a school was w- willing to pay $1,000 per year for class cover. Yeah. We need a revenue ASAP. Yeah. So we price quite low. Yeah. A gentleman called Peter Thiel, who was a co-founder of PayPal, extremely mm-hmm. successful investor, he talks about the software as a service valley of death. Oh, yes. I've heard you talk about this yeah. before. I've heard you off being quoted. <laughs> <laughs> and, so uh, tell us about the valley, the SaaS Valley of the Death. The SaaS Valley of Death. So, so he, he puts forward that a, that a SaaS company has a very hard time surviving if their price point sits somewhere between $100 per year and $1,000 per year. And that's because that under $100 a year, people will typically make impulsive yep. decisions. Won't even think about it. Need no coercion. Mm-hmm. Above 1000 you can afford a, a sales team. Mm. But in between that, there is too much impediment in the way of price mm. point to make that impulsive decision, but then you can't afford a sales team. Yeah. And we found ourselves smack bang in the middle of mm. the, the SAS Valley of Death. Mm. We're charging probably $600 per school per year on average. And so from a first principles point of view, and not to say this was anything revolutionary because lots of people do it, but we dropped our cost of acquisition for schools at class cover by engaging with still our excellent team in Cebu and the Philippines. Mm. 
and my co-founder and I would go to principals conferences, drum up interest, and then the guys in the Philippines would would call through and book demos and and get free trials, mm. and it allowed us to survive in that SAS Valley of Death zone. Mm. Well, a lot of people around us were saying, "Oh no, you'll never survive." You'll never. But it's just, just innovate your mindset. Just just mm. yeah, you know, the world is so full of um, opportunities to pull levers in relation to operating costs or, or mm. logistics. And, and that's what we did. Um, and then obviously gradually we lifted our price up, uh, but we still follow the same model today, except we don't go to principals conferences anymore because there's a pandemic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Really interesting. All right. So I've got a question with that. I'm hearing people saying now, it's really hard to sell. You can't acquire new customers because you can only do that face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And I question that from a first principles point of view, yeah. but- What's your view of that kind of thinking? I, I think it depends because obviously relationships and rapport form a huge part of the mm. sales process. Mm. And, and I think, again, I think it's something that um, people underestimate it. But in education, especially mm. in what I call a compassionate industry, people purchase on emotion. And, and so I think there is some validity to there being, you know, there are greater challenges, but maybe it's just an adjustment. And, and that adjustment is because people had that expectation. And we see, it's funny, I, th- I think it's a really New South Wales thing, having sold class cover all around the country, where everyone in New South Wales wants to be your mate before they buy. Right. Whereas in, in other states in Australia, what I've noticed is a greater pragmatism. Even in Queensland? Uh, it's funny you say it actually, because we have a we have an enterprise contract in Queensland, but we don't have any school to school sales for ah. uh, the reason anyway, not not worth going into. But um, so we haven't actually tested it there, interestingly. Mm. But in relation to the face to face component, is gone? Is it more difficult? I think, like everything we've experienced in the last eight months or so, mm. it's a it's a new challenge. But I, I mentioned um, before we came on air that we've got this um, agreement to deliver online tutoring yeah. for a big Australian charity who I can't name at the moment, but um, uh, and it's 6,000 hours of, of tutoring for underprivileged kids. Really excited about it's it. wonderful, fantastic project. I literally saw the project manager for the first time today yeah. on, on a Zoom call. Yeah. It had been phone and email, and, mm. and, and we were amazed that when we got on the Zoom call, I can't believe we haven't even seen each other on a video call. Yeah. And I think the world has adjusted. The world And, and it's a bit like this... You, well, you're not going to be able to run a functioning company unless everyone's in the office five days a week. Yeah. And once the hand was forced by virtue of coronavirus, we could then, well, we were then almost forced to test alternative methods to work remotely or mm. to sell remotely or to conduct events remotely. And, you know, some might not work as well. Um, others take an adjustment period. Some may work better. You and I are doing an event together at some point in the next week or so. It'll be brilliant. We are. It's remote and it'll be amazing. That's right, yeah. So now is the time, I think, for when business leaders are thinking about work, about how how to engage the teams and where and what does it look like. This is a great time to have no analogies, I think. Agreed. This is a great time for thinking what is it we want to achieve what do we want our teams to be doing? What do they want to be doing? How else could we be doing it mm-hmm. that's different from what anyone's ever thought before? Absolutely. And what a 
great gift we all have as business leaders to be able to do this. I agree. I, I think I honestly I would, would refer to it as forced evolution in a yeah. way. There's been a lot of people making excuses for not changing mm. when when the answer's been right. Like, is is the two hour commute is that investment of mm. time? Is it worth the return? And and probably the argument that probably where it settles is somewhere in between. Mm. Is that is that the the return on investment of commuting two hours to go see your team sometimes is probably worth it. Mm. Is it worth 10 hours of commuting a week? Probably yeah. not for most organisations. Yeah. So it's that sort of forced evolution of thinking. Mm. I, I really like that. It's a great way to look at it. What other hats do you have to wear as a business owner? Yeah, so, um, I mean, really the, the, the finance side of things, the marketing, I mean, we, we have um, – Basically, obviously, a product. It's yeah. we the finance, the marketing, um, the enterprise sales, and and again, we're sort of in that stage where, I mean, now I, I find my time sort of educating other startup founders about mm. how to be in that scramble, and and how to wear those hats. Where again, you might having you might start your day designing a marketing flyer. Um, you might do some bug testing if yeah. if you're in technology. You might make ten sales phone calls. And um, yeah, it's 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 an amazing juggle. It's it's a great and and really energizing environment to be in for the person who is endlessly curious and wants to try and improve themselves across all areas. Mm. And really, in order to keep those sort of hats on, I guess it's important that you're very very aware of what you're good at and mm-hmm. what you like doing, and not neglecting what you're not good at yeah. and what you don't like doing. And there's a whole bunch of strategies that you can use in order to make sure that you're still giving equal amounts of love across your entire business, mm. despite the fact that your capability set or your or, or your passions might not lie in something like finance, mm-hmm. for example, or mm-hmm. making sales calls. Yeah. So how do you manage the balance then of of stepping back at the right time? delegating or bringing in an expert who complements your skill set but still being around the whole business as the founder of a startup? I mean, I've just found this brilliant little hack like, and it's it's a little technology hack and and that is that I have a – I have 22 bookmarks, would you believe, saved in one folder on my on my Chrome browser. Right. I right-click, say open all 22 and I start my day with 22 – um, tabs open, right? And what those twenty-two tabs represent is is the class cover pulse. Basically, mm-hmm. I've got dashboards on sales, I've got dashboards on product. Where's the latest sprint up to? I can see ticket sales for our relief teacher conference. I can see where our customer success team, you know, what what they're working on in relation to trying to make our customers more successful. Ninety percent of those tabs will be closed in twenty minutes because it's a quick check in. It reduces questions that I need to ask my team yes, so I can focus on more strategic things or questions that matter. Um, that's a really tangible way of keeping all those balls in the air. And um, yeah, I mean, in relation to knowing sort of how to balance and what to focus on, I just always try to keep a, or, or to be really mindful mm. of highest impact, lowest effort. And if it's a lot of effort, it better be high impact. And, and again, because we all are susceptible to drifting Yes. You know, some people, and I see this all the time, product guys who don't want to sell. and They just want to keep 
iterating. I'll just change it, change it, change That's it, right. change it. Exactly I right. I can improve it a bit more. Yep, yeah, yep. I'll have another yep. look at yep. it. And, yep. and that, that could include some founder pride as well. We see yep. that all the time where, yep. they, where they hold on tight, not now, not now, not now, mm. and, and then they let it out. But this sort of if you build it, they will come yeah. um, mindset <laughs> yep. is really problematic yeah. with a, a lot of startups because building a product is fun. It's great. It's your baby. You're mm. probably solving problems. But ultimately, you should be a slave to your customer and they should be dictating um, your roadmap, whether, whether it be, again, a tech product or, or a regular product or service. It's absolutely whose problem are you solving. Exactly right. And how do they want that solved. That's right. What are your top tips for someone considering a startup? So first and foremost, I would say uh, you want to identify – a big problem with mm. a big solution in a big market. And for Australian startups, that actually presents a, a challenge because I think it's, uh, again, not I don't want to be critical of the Australian startup ecosystem, but at the same time, um, by virtue of us having quite a small market, we do see quite a few what I would call non-problems being solved. Yeah, a solution looking for a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's because, and, and look, I think startups not trendy. It went through a a period of being trendy, yeah. but startups here to stay. You know, it, it's so cost effective to start a business mm. now uh, with it, with everything at our all the all the tools at our disposal that it's mm. it's not going away. But at the same time, a lot of people love the entrepreneur dream. They don't have the big solution to go with the big problem, mm. so they try to reverse engineer a problem or or a solution. In fact, and and that can be that can be tricky. And if you're in a market of 310 million people in the US, you can solve non problems and still get critical mass. Yeah. Uh, in Australia, it's it's a different kettle of fish. And so for people wanting to go down this startup route, you need to ask yourself, is this a problem worth solving? And for me, it comes back to what I'd call a sleep test for me personally. Mm. And, and just like yourself and just like so many other people, you'll have ideas going through your mind all the time. Now, probably about 90% of them don't survive one sleep for me. <laughs> I'll wake up three in the morning and go, oh, no, that won't work. And then a few of them, Mm. We'll get through four or five nights of sleep mm. and inevitably I'll wake up and go, oh, bugger, it didn't think of that. And then with class cover, eight years on, I, bottom of my heart, still get out of bed in the morning and think this is a problem worth solving. If we don't solve this problem, some senior executive at the school is going to have to go back to making two All hours of phone, phone calls. calls. And, and just an extension on that big problem, big solution, big market, when you're asking other people, their opinions on your problem and solution, don't ask your family and friends because they love you way too much. <laughs> and, yeah. and you want to get a diversity of feedback because even people who are not family and friends, because, and I think this is partly cultural as well, they don't want to let you down. They don't want to be negative. They'll say, mm. oh, yeah, I'll buy your product. Yeah. And then ask them to write a check. You know, it's so often people just don't want to hurt feelings. Mm. And so getting that, excellent early stage feedback to make those first crucial decisions as to you got 40,000 hard-earned dollars in the bank and you want to learn and, and you want to get a, a version one product out, you need to ask those big questions before uh, about problem and solution before you go down that path of actually deploying any of those funds. Spending something money. Yeah. Boy, out of all of this, some wonderful tips at the end about what really a startup is is and I've heard from you so much it's about the problem from the customer's mm -hmm. point of view and with class cover you're really clear on who the customer was mm -hmm. absolutely 
and it's a platform, so you've built out an ecosystem of all different customers mm-hmm. ultimately, but that that's really interesting. And I think the points you've made about the hats that a founder, owner wears, where the hats they wear as well as the hats that any CEO of any business wears. Mm-hmm. And that's about, I love that context. That one's really good. I'm going to think about that a lot. And removing the barriers. Yeah. And then when you talk about the kind of culture that you have with remote teams, there's been a lot to think about here, Ben, and thank you so much for joining us today. That's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that's Tech Live for today. CEOs are in the business of making decisions and leadership is the art of execution. I'm Stephanie Christopher and look forward to talking to you next time. Mm-hmm.